Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom and the things they've learned along the way. For over 30 years, Eva Hamilton, MBE, has worked with society's marginalised groups and has been responsible for coming up with pioneering and radical approaches to dealing with some of the UK's most complex social problems. She's now CEO of her own UK charity, Key for Life, which aims to rehabilitate youth offenders to help stop them reoffending, reintegrating them back into society once released from prison. She was awarded an MBE for these services by HRH, the Prince of Wales, in 2005. Eva's rebellious childhood was a starting point for her choosing this path to help others. And it was from her own personal experiences, including her own mental and emotional health challenges, that she recognised the importance of having inspirational role models in youngsters' lives. Her journey led her to work in one of Mother Teresa's homes for the terminally ill in Calcutta. And it was here she had a vision that her destiny wasn't to make big money, but instead to help others change the world. She followed her calling and her charity does exactly that. And the statistics speak for themselves with every offender who goes through one of her Key for Life programmes being four times less likely to return to prison and four times more likely to get a job. What an amazing woman Eva Hamilton, MBE is, and I'm absolutely delighted that she's joined us on the Sandro Forte podcast. So Eva, welcome. Thank you for giving up time and I know what is a very, very busy schedule. So straight in, I know time is very, very limited. So let's find out a little bit more about Eva Hamilton for those who don't know you. Could we start maybe taking you back to India and where all this inspiration came from? Well, I, yeah, I suppose, actually, I I grew up and was uh, born into an Irish, actually, Protestant family. So had our own challenges as a youngster. My dad was alcoholic. So I had, uh, and my sisters, quite a challenging time for me. So I saw and went through a lot as a youngster. So I was very anxious by the time I got to 18 uh, to get away and go traveling and and look at the, find find what was out in the world. And I, my first... Uh, stop was actually India. And I found myself after about five weeks arriving in Calcutta. And it was an extraordinary experience because I'm the sort of person who faints at the sight of blood and is not very good with seeing horrible, gruesome sights. And we were staying, the girl I was with, Rachel, in the Salvation Army. And this doctor appeared, an English guy, who said, I'm looking for people to come to the home for the dying with me would you consider coming to help? And my girlfriend, who's usually the really tough one, said, no, I don't think I could do that. And something kept telling me, go for it, go for it. So I did. Went along with him. um, And I was given the task to work with Mother Teresa's number two of scrubbing the plastic mattresses and then helping while the doctor was treating people with maggots and terrible TB, terrible illnesses, just things I'd never seen. I had to hold his utensils. And it was kind of there that I had this extraordinary, it was it was an extraordinary calling to say that I was never going to make a lot of money on this planet, but I was here to serve. And I, I, what's so strange about that extraordinary experience in, in Calcutta, and I then went on to travel uh, the rest of the year, but I took my kids, so I've now got a... 20, nearly 22-year-old. She's 
graduating next week from Exeter and I've got a 19-year-old and I took them with my husband back to Calcutta three years ago to the home for the dying and it was one of the most moving, moving moments of my life where my daughter and son were both with me going around to meet all the people who were just about to die and they were all ages and we came across some horrific scenes and there was one woman who said, you won't believe it, but I'm an Oxford graduate and I don't have one uh, member of my family still with me and I'm dying on my own. Hold my hand, please help me. That was one scene. And then another scene was this darling woman who started screaming, crying because she thought my son was her child and she'd had all her children taken from her. And she was quite young, actually. So the two, my two children were really put in front of some pretty horrific scenes and it was really moving. And going back there, I remember leaving Calcutta uh, weeping as I left Calcutta. I felt so moved that that was where, you know, literally uh, it must have been 25 years before. That was where I had had my great calling. And there I was taking my own children back there. It was just extraordinary. And we ended up that night actually with Mother uh, Mother Teresa's house um, with the orphans. And my children were playing with the orphans. And the eldest was Teresa. And she really reminded me of Mother Teresa. Wonderful girl. And we sat with 20 children. The youngest was two. And all of them were orphans. And it was such a great insight for my children to realise just how lucky they are. Mm. And I guess mm. that, that experience is starting to shape, if it's not already shaped them. Yeah, totally. Absolutely, totally. My daughter's uh, just in London working at Wimbledon and she rang me two nights ago really upset about meeting a homeless man outside uh, in, in Wimbledon, outside Sainsbury's. And But she, when she was with me as a baby, because I ran a homeless campaign, and uh, well, we'll go on and we'll talk about that in a minute, but homelessness was my big area and she would spend a lot of time on the streets outside Fulham Broadway with me when she was tiny with all the homeless and so would my little son. Yeah. Wow. And what, what do you say to people who, you know, probably think, well, this epiphany would only come to Eva Hamilton or just mm. a few people. I mean, clearly you put yourself in a position. How many people can say they've been to Mother Teresa's house? <laughs> oh, that's pretty incredible. Um, but I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast, and there's mm. <laughs> there's a lot of them now, I'm mm -hmm. pleased to say, a lot of them, you know, are kind of a bit sceptical. Oh, well, you know, it only happens to a few people. But you put yourself in a position where, you, f you found that yeah. that path in life that you've now decided to follow. No, and I think you know, I think you make such a good point. I mean, I think it's in life you never know when you get thrown or you 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 often think coincidentally I've met somebody. I have a real belief in a greater purpose, and I believe that things happen for a reason, good and bad. And I think you know my worst parts, and I have been through some pretty horrific things. Um, I would say have been the making of me. Now I can reflect on it, right? And I think that's really important. So I think when you believe there is a higher purpose and that all of us can make a difference in the world. It's just so many times we all think we don't have a choice when actually we do have a choice. Every single one of us has a choice in life. So even my young men, when they commit crime and they try and blame somebody else, I always go, yes, but you had a choice. You know, I do truly believe that. And I think that we have to follow our passions and our desires, mm. you know. It must be mm. very, very fulfilling what you do. I mean, clearly you've been recognised, mm. mm. rightly so. Mm. Tell me about some of the people, the, the offenders you work with and the, and the journey they go on. What, what typically tends to happen that lead them to 
a life of crime till you get hold of them. Yeah, well, I think in a way, my earlier work, if I just explain, just because it builds up to why I did The Offender. So when I, I was very lucky that at the age of 22, I set up a programme for Prince Charles called Seeing as Believing. So I would take chief execs, business leaders into some of the most deprived areas in Britain. And I'd never really, I'd, yes, I'd been to Mother Teresa's, but I actually hadn't really seen what was going on in Britain. Come, getting Taking people out of their ivory towers, these CEOs, and bringing them into the most deprived communities, whether that's a, in a city housing estate, a school, going into homeless projects. So we would go either with the Prince of Wales or without him and then the business people would tell the Prince what they're going to now do. And that was completely his idea. He's absolutely inspirational man. Um, but for me, that gave me such an insight to the problems. I would meet men who at one point who were, who were in homeless shelters who were telling me they were business. They used to be businessmen. Some used to be soldiers. You know, they all had amazing lives. And <clears throat> suddenly one knock maybe one or two knocks <clears throat> had resulted in them ending up in the streets. So for me, that showed me just how easy it is. Then I set up, I had another calling, which was to, if children can go and work experience, why don't we apply the same notion to the homeless? And I put a brand new model together in 1999, um, took it uh, to London Got about 10 companies, including BT, Reuters, Virgin Records, lots of corporates to say, would you take an, uh, somebody who's been homeless, sleeping rough on a work placement? And they all thought it was a crazy idea. So they agreed they'd do it. So we had 14 on the pilot. And out of the 14, 13 completed that. And then Marks and Spencer heard about it and contacted me about six weeks later saying, right, we want to invest a substantial amount of money into you and we'd like to roll this out, give you a thousand placements and we'd like to roll this programme out to 23 cities. And that was awesome. I said, listen, 20, I've only done 14. So we negotiated on 600 and I roll that model and I have to say it's still going really, really well. It's very, very successful. But the homeless, which was where I really started, they were the, the storyboard that sat behind each homeless person, as you see in London and all over the country. It's so tragic because you see some but that's just a mask they're wearing. When you start asking and digging why they're homeless, that's what's so distressing, just like my daughter found out the other night when she met the man at Sainsbury's. But what I recognised, having done my 20 years at Business in the Community and running this great campaign, was that we did some research and we asked a lot of the homeless who were on the streets... Um, Many of them had got jobs and then I go find them back on the streets and I say, why are you back on the streets? So all you ever wanted was a job and a home. And they always cited the fact that their demons had come back to haunt them. And it was at that point I realised that if you don't unlock your pain that you're carrying from the past and just keep hanging on to it, you're going to keep causing the same problems are going to keep arising. So I then took the step in 2006, partly because my daughter was quite ill. We moved to Somerset and I decided I'm going to set up a new charity solely focusing on unlocking pain. But I didn't want to unlock the pain by going into the drama of, oh, you've been abused by your father, you've had awful things happen in your life. Whatever the storyboard is, we all have a storyboard. So my thought was, let's do it in a way. And I found this NLP and I, anyway, started it initially with the homeless, a three-day programme, and then rolled it out to soldiers coming back from war-torn zones with post-traumatic stress. So in that sort of five years I'd been running it, I ended up putting about 500 um, ex-service personnel through this process. And it's called the Warrior Programme. It's still going. But in 2011, having done all of this, what I was so saddened by was when I saw children as young as eight rioting. And it was at that point I thought, you know what, 
Now I'm going to put all my own learnings together, including my own stuff, because I've had quite a lot of stuff and depression. And I'm going to put a brand new model in for the UK together, which would really, if it was for me or others, if I had it 20 years before, I probably wouldn't have fallen into those same traps. So that's really, and I'll come on to explain that in a minute, but Mm. that's really the backdrop. So these people are all, whether it's a soldier, whether it's a homeless person, they're all a guy who's been in prison, and and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Well, you've done done that brilliantly. One of the questions I had for you, Eva, was, Mm. because I'm fascinating, I know lots and lots of listeners would be asking the same question, which is, is there an archetypal offender? But from everything you've just said, Mm. the answer is an unequivocal no. No. I mean, I feel there are a lot of contributing factors to why people offend. And I think, sadly, so much of it starts at the home. Um, I think a lot of our young men um, have never had role models in their lives. So if your father and your grandfather and everyone's been in prison and you have crime all around you, it's very, very difficult for you then to make that decision to go to university or, you know, you have, you, you've you already started in a way, your cards that you've been dealt are mm. pretty negative. But you also have those children that have got, and we see it time and time again, where they've got ADHD, they've got mental health issues, but they're not diagnosed and then they get kicked out of school or they go to, you know, uh, peruse, and then that's a breeding ground. So I would say that if you met our young men, Some of them have come from nice families and they've fallen in trouble. Yes, there is a large majority with single mums. So 72% of our young men do not have a father present. I think that's a hugely important factor. Yeah, it's a statistic you can't ignore. Absolutely can't Mm. ignore it. And no father there. And so what I tended to see, particularly in the early days with all the top gang leaders I was working with, is that the mother would have lots of other, would have other children, maybe from other fathers. And that tended to be the eldest son that was in trouble. And what he would tend to do is go off and see her struggling because she couldn't put food on the table or electricity. Um, So he'd go and get involved in drug dealing Mm. in order to feed the family. So he was effectively the man of the fa- of the house. Now, the mother would always say to me she didn't know what he was up to and where he got the money from. Maybe she did, but often they claim they didn't know until he then gets arrested and he's in prison. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you. There's so many synergies between us, which you won't be aware of. Somerset. <laughs> yeah. We both come from the same wow, place. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, and I, my experience of India is very similar to yours. It is a, mm-hmm. a fabulous place. Have you ever read a book called Shantaram by Gregory I've David Roberts? Shantaram, read it, please, please, please yeah. read it. Even I, if you don't read yeah. books, it's yeah, worth no, doing. I love it. Um, I and for those listening who don't know this book, uh, do take the trouble to go and buy it by a guy called Gregory David Roberts. He was a journalist in Australia, uh, got uh, arrested for armed robbery, broke out of prison and settled, ran, fled, if you like, to uh, India and got involved with all the wrong people and it's an autobiography if you like of how he transitioned from a world of crime into uh, a a calling much Mm -hmm. like yours it's a really fascinating way it will resonate with you in lots and lots of ways Eva how could you distill your Keith Life mission in a few sentences if that's even possible it's, it's all about so we're about rehabilitating young men in prison and those at risk of going to prison so How we do that is through a seven-step model. So we do extraordinary things like bringing horses into the prisons. Uh, The horse acts as an amazing mirror. I happen to have four of my own horses. So I've had, when I had my depression, it was actually my horses that helped me get through a lot of my pain. And we use an equine facilitator. It's a methodology from um, America. It's incredible. We work with uh, QPR, Fulham, Chelsea. We bring football in. We work with the music industry. 
Universal Music and other um, labels. So we do a lot with grime artists. So the early stages is all about unlocking pain. Then we go on, once we've unlocked their pain, we look at employability. So we will do things from CV preparation, bring, giving them a mentor, helping prepare them for the world of work, which is absolutely crucial. And then whether it's in prison or out of prison, we'll bring 25 companies in and they'll do speed dating and they will end up interviewing our men. Some of them have never worked legally before, but they've got amazing transferable skills. So that's a first for them. And then the family, we go and visit the families. And then within a week, if they've been in prison, we have them straight out to be suited and booted, get them into a suit. And then we get them straight on three-day work tasters. And that can be into the city, wherever. It's extraordinary. All sorts of amazing companies. And then we bring them to Somerset. So a lot of them will come down on residentials. So we believe that the uh, effect of the countryside is amazing and the horses and all of that reappears. And we give them lots of tools. We do support meetings and then they graduate. And then many of them now are being trained up as key mentors. So they are getting an equivalent of an A-level and they're going back to help others. So our our program is, if it's a prison program, it's a year long. If it's at risk, which means they could have been in prison before, but it's in the community, it's six months. And our latest thread, which is a really challenging bit of work, is three months. And that's children as young as 10 caught up in knife crime while working with them. We start in White City in a couple of weeks' time. Wow. If there was more than just the two of us in this studio right now, Eva, you'd be getting a round of applause. <laughs> um, I, I mean, clearly your CV is enhanced by virtue of the fact you have your own personal experience. Mm-hmm. If, if it's not too difficult for you to talk about it. Yeah. Would you mind just sharing with us as much as you yeah, want no, to no, based that's... on your own experiences? Yeah, of... so I don't, you know, lots, lots of people don't necessarily know that I've had, yeah, I've had, suffice to say, some nasty, some challenging stuff as a youngster. And, you know, even though I have a great relationship with my father, you know, he was a violent alcoholic till we were 14. So that was challenging in itself, what we all had to go through. Um, I then, you know, was pretty wayward, I think, because if you don't have a very solid foundation when you're younger, you do tend to rebel a bit. And then uh, by the age of 28 was running Prince Charles's fabulous programme and burnt out and didn't sleep for a year and was put into a psychiatric unit in Dublin and then diagnosed with bipolar. So not... Wow, it's not often I'm rendered speechless. (laughs) As anyone who knows me will tell you, Eva, uh, that is remarkable. And thank you for for sharing it because it will resonate with a lot of people. You know, let's let's not kid ourselves that life is straightforward. And on that word that you mentioned earlier, challenges, Mm -hmm. which is probably a bit of understating the whole situation that you've experienced. Uh, clearly, there have been some challenges along the way mm-hmm. for you. It's not mm-hmm. been straightforward. Mm-hmm. Getting a, you know, once you get your calling, to mm-hmm. use your expression, getting the whole thing up and running, lots yeah. of challenges along the way. How do you deal with everything from the alcoholic, abusive father to mm-hmm. uh, the road bumps you inevitably experience when you mm-hmm. try and set up a business? How do you deal with those things? Well, I think it's all about, I'm very lucky. Um, I have, yeah, I've got, I'd say I've got quite a good faith that I do meditation. I do a lot of, I suppose now, how would the word be mindfulness? I'm much better at looking in at myself now. And I think I keep myself, I'm checking myself the whole time. And I think the minute I lose perspective of myself or allow little things get me stressed, I, I you know, I, t- I really try to um, see the bigger picture, realise how lucky I am with what I've got. And that I've, that's why I said earlier in the interview, actually, all those challenges I've had in many ways have made me realise, made me tougher, but also made me empathise with people in much, in, in, particularly if I go into a prison, they look at me when I'm presenting to 30 men going, 
what does she have in common with us? But then when they hear what I've been through, they all go, oh, Eva, we really relate to you. And I and I really do relate to them because, mm. you know, there's not many people who can say they've been suicide. You know, I know what it's like not to when you've got, you're looking after children and you cannot even get out of bed mm. and you are, you know, you just don't want to continue on this planet. So I've been very, very lucky to have surrounded myself with people as well who help me. And that includes my own team. I have a super team of people who work with me who really get me and they know I drive hard and fast, but I also so care deeply for them and the young men. So I think, yeah, in, in sort of answer to, to your question, to mount a mission like I have, you've got to keep yourself very grounded. Mm. So I have a lot of animals, horses, dogs, you know, and when I get home in the evening when I'm in Somerset, I will run, I will go into the woods, I will I will just be on my own. And I think if I didn't have that time on my own, I would, I would really struggle. Mm. And the, uh, just changing tact for a moment, United Campaign? Yeah, so the United campaign is weird because that came into a dream about seven or eight months ago where, and I do listen to my dreams carefully, and the dream was is that the world, and we all know this, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and that um, too many companies in Britain at the moment we know will not touch somebody with a conviction. So we know that there's 13 million people with convictions. It could be a road conviction, but we know whether you've been in prison or not and you've got a conviction, it's very difficult to get a job. So the idea of the United flag is to create an inclusive workplace, not exclusive, which a lot of companies are running at the moment. So the idea is we're going to be awarding companies who hire an offender with the United flag, which they can then fly from their company, um, which is, yeah, really, yeah, it's going to be, I think, the, hopefully it'll be the, the game changer that more businesses will feel. And then those companies that hire one out of every 200 people will be an offender. They will put a gold star on the we'll put a gold star on the flag so they'll get the gold star option as well wow that's amazing flag. That is yeah, amazing. so we're just starting it as we speak tell me secretly what's it like to be an mbe <laughs> oh you're very listen i don't even though you're very kind to say that i don't i'm an honorary mbe because i'm irish i to be perfectly honest when i got that award, Eva, an mbe is an mbe <laughs> as far as i'm concerned when I was very lucky, the Prince of Wales, because I'm Irish, did a little private ceremony for me. And I have to be honest with you, it was a moment that I had to pinch myself. Um, my father and mother were waiting for me and my husband, James, who's been such a rock to me uh, at Clarence House. And I'd been at Waitrose presenting and my mother kept telling me that day, firstly, your brooch, you're showing too much, you're whatever below. You have to wear this brooch, which I didn't wear. And then don't be late. And of course, both of the things I didn't listen to, I arrived wet with my hair wet. They were waiting. <laughs> And then when Prince Charles went to try and give me my um, lovely MBE, my mother was glaring because it was, it was anyway, yeah, they didn't think, he, he didn't decide it was the right thing to put on my top. It was, uh, it was something he would hand to me and I would put it on. Right. I say no more. <laughs> I'm, I'm very, I, I don't want to get too political now because we're talking about mm. some, uh, you know, some, some stuff, some, some subject matter here, which is very mm. difficult for people to address in their mm. lives. But um, I also just want to talk to you a little bit, since we get very few female guests mm -hmm. on this show, mm -hmm. unfortunately, I wish there were more. Um, do you think it's getting harder, easier, uh, the particular challenges for women in the workplace, would you say? Yeah, I think, you know what, I think, is it getting harder, is it getting easier? I think it's what you make of it. I've always 
been around where women, business and community, you know, I work with women who are lots of incredible women. So I suppose I haven't seen that so much. What I probably would say is that definitely now that I'm out pitching to businesses and I'm having to go into a lot of male executives, some female, you know, I can see that, yeah, at times being a woman and doing this job for me they probably look and say, oh my goodness, what does she know about this? And then I have to really kind of stress what I've done and who I am to be really heard. Mm. And I'd like to circle back in terms of mindset because mm-hmm. you talk about NLP. So for mm-hmm. those of you who don't know what NLP means, neuro-linguistic programming, mm-hmm. how important is mindset to you? Well, uh, or and to, to, for people generally in your experience? Well, I think, to be perfectly honest, I think mindset, going back to it, whatever's gone on in my life is how awful it is. Mindset is everything. If you have a positive mindset and you believe you can achieve things, you will achieve things. I've seen myself when I had internal dialogue that was really negative about myself and I was full of fear and and not happy in myself and, and basically burnt out. When you're constantly talking negatively about yourself to yourself, it unfortunately what happens then is almost the brain begins to believe it. So your symptoms, you lose all your confidence, you don't want to leave your house. So having been a very normal human being, I felt a very unnormal human being very, very quickly. And I'd say that once you start thinking like that and you fall into these black holes, you've got to be so careful because you go in so quickly, but it's very difficult to get out unless you've got the right support and help. And a lot of it, unfortunately, it does come from within. Um, But you really have to retrain yourself and you have to just see the world in a different way. So I see the world now in a totally different way to where I did 20 years ago. And if you didn't have the perspective that you've had, how would someone, even in your experience, be able to start that process of evolution or transformation from a dark place to something that is perhaps more positive? Yeah, I mean, I, and I think you make such a good point. I, when I talk to our young men, when they're having a really bad time, and I do a lot around breath, and very simple techniques you can do about breathing three and breathe out six, being much more grounded, doing routine. So little things, if you don't feel like going to the gym, it's about making yourself getting out, doing exercise. I'm a great believer that is so, so important. Equally as important as sitting and maybe learning how to do some meditation. And I don't mean meditation and having to spend half an hour, even five minutes, just where you visualize positive things, because so much of it is about the pictures you put in your head. So we can do it, but we run away from it because we're scared and we're scared to go there. Mm. And what I think we also tend to do is blame everyone else for our problems. And what I've learned in life is you've got to take responsibility for your own actions, as painful as that might seem. And that when you get angry with other people or you're putting, you know, I'm always telling this to our young men, we do a lot of uh, forgiveness techniques. You've got to realise that if you're slagging somebody off, you're only actually talking about yourself right? Because you're Mm. projecting all your stuff onto somebody else. So it's the hardest thing in life is to try and keep that mind of ours, our mind, mental, physical, emotional planes Mm. as clear as possible. Um, And baby steps initially to change how you're thinking is so important. I am very mindful of the fact we have very little time left. So Mm. it's almost like a car waiting for you to Mm. whisk you off somewhere else. Mm. Um, So in the couple of minutes we've got left, just one one question. How do we find out more about um, you and the amazing work you're doing? Because lots of people want to know. Super. Well, so the best place to go to is our website, which is www.key with a number four life.org.uk. 
Fabulous. And social media? And, and social media, we've got we're, we're on Twitter, Key for Life, as well as as well as well Facebook. And, and Eva Hamilton's quite easy to look yeah. up as well. Yeah. Okay, fabulous. Um, last question then, if I may. It's a question, uh, if you've not listened to any of the mm. podcast shows, of course you're going to say you have, mm. but uh, it doesn't matter whether you have or you haven't. Um, the question we ask all of our guests, Eva, which I, and I, I can't think of a better guest to ask this question to in terms of encapsulating all that amazing stuff you've shared, mm. and thank you so much, would be... If we had a young Eva Hamilton mm. sitting with us now and she said to you, Mum, based on your life experiences, mm. all the things you know now, mm-hmm. what single piece of advice would you give me? I'm sure there's lots of things, but mm. what one bit of advice would you give me to help give me the best possible start in life? What What would that advice from Eva Hamilton Sr.? I would Eva say, Junior gosh, B? my first bit of advice, I think really main bit would be true to, be true to yourself never compromise what you want in life and I think the internal compass that you've got creating that compass which shows you what's good and what's bad and the boundaries and what you want out of your life that internal compass go inside rather than go outside so so many people look to social media and want everyone to tell them they're so fabulous my biggest advice is the resilience starts within if you aren't resilient within yourself Look what happened to me. I found myself falling into some very, very big black holes. I would say really focus on self, internal self. Get the resilience. Really, really, really work on your resilience uh, and enjoy your life, you know, and do aim high Mm. and release anything as possible. What a brilliant way to summarise a fabulous, fascinating podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. So many people will have taken so much away from this and I'm sure there'll be umpteen calls for you to come back again. So when time allows, I'd love to ask you you some more questions. Uh, But the fabulous Eva Hamilton MBE, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, And what an amazing, an amazing guest. And I meant what I said earlier on. I was, well, speechless. So um, thank you. The real life Mother Teresa. Thank you so much. Bless you. Thank you. That was the Sandro Forte podcast. There are many more fantastic guests joining me over the coming weeks, so please make sure you subscribe if you want to pick up some more great tips on success and, of course, overcoming challenges. Remember, you can follow us on social media at Sandro's Podcast. That's Sandro's with an S, same on all channels. And we'd love to hear your stories, ideas, anecdotes, challenges, or whatever it is that motivates you. So please keep the emails coming. Hello at sandrospodcast.com. And if you can, please leave a review on iTunes so we know what you'd like more of in the future. Until next week, see you soon. Thank you.